It's Saturday morning, and I get a text from my producer, Catherine. It's a link to a BuzzFeed commentary titled, White Women Drive Me Crazy. The story's by Aisha Mirza, a mental health counselor from East London, whose mom was first-generation Pakistani British, and her dad was born in Egypt. Her stepdad is white. Aisha's article recalls a moment when she stepped on a white woman's mat in a yoga class. The woman looked at her like she was offensive. And Aisha suddenly remembered all the looks she's gotten like that from white women all her life and how they made her feel. The piece went viral. Reading Aisha's commentary was a revelation for me. I realized all the times white women had looked at me like that. From the white lady playground monitor in kindergarten who used to follow me around and reprimand me as often as possible to my first roommate after college, the blonde sorority girl Mm. who used to sing off-key as loud as possible and regarded me like I was an alien fungus. I know plenty of white women who aren't like that. Catherine's white. When she sent me the article, she texted, will you please never let me become this? I didn't say anything because that wasn't the point of the commentary. I decided to talk to Aisha Mirza myself And she said she didn't write the piece so white women would feel ashamed and change. She wrote it so brown and black people would know that other brown and black people experience the same thing with white women and feel the same way about those looks. And those feelings are valid. I'm Rupa Shinoy, and this is Anotherhood Short. Yeah, so the essay I wrote starts in this yoga class that my friend who was visiting from London made me go to in the first place. So kind of a little nervous anyway, and accidentally kind of moved towards this woman's mat and stand on it. (laughs) And she just gave me this really striking look. She looked at me in this way that I kind of describe as like fear, disgust, like horror, like real horror. And it made you realize something about how you felt when you were a kid, right? I guess, you know, to use a popular word right now, it was triggering, you know, it like triggered all of these memories and moments in my life where I've been othered in different ways or kind of made to feel uncomfortable, but in these really quiet ways, you know, like the looks, the smiles or the weird hugs or the weird touches, you know, like these really quiet ways in which these dynamics are reinforced. And I felt really angry about it. And I don't feel angry that often. So I really leaned into that. (laughs) Why do you think you were angry if you'd experienced it before? Since I've been living in New York, which is like nearly three years, I've made a real effort to surround myself with other people of colour and other queer people of colour, and there's like a kind of incredible community here. So I hadn't actually been like in a white environment like that yoga class was, and I hadn't really dealt with like a look like that for a while. And then suddenly this white woman's looking at me and I'm like, no. (laughs) this must end here (laughs) so what do you think that look means what where is it coming from it could mean a lot of things and there are a lot of different variations on that look you know it's it's very like nuanced and deep which I think is part of the reason why it's so hard to pin down and I think part of the reason why people were relieved that I tried in this essay you know because they are looks and It's really hard to have the confidence to say, I know why you're looking at me that way. And that's, I think, why they're so sinister. I mean, I don't actually like to focus like so much on that moment, given the scope of the essay, Mm -hmm. because 
I don't know why she was looking at me like that. Yeah. You know, and that's not exactly the point. To point a certain is, extent, it's about your perception, right, of the look? Totally, yeah, which is valid. And that's the thing, you know, like, obviously a lot of people were very happy that I wrote this piece, but then a lot of white women specifically were like, how dare you judge this woman's look, you know? You're not inside her head, you don't know what she was thinking. And that's just really not the point because everything is racialized and she looked at me in a way that was triggering because I realized that there have been so many of these racialized moments in my life and some of them are much more easier to say like that is racism and she might have been a germaphobe as like so many white women are like emailing me to tell me you know they're like no 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 like she's not racist she just doesn't like germs like don't you understand you know and that's kind of the gray area that I'm really interested in looking into. Let's talk a little bit about the reaction. It was it was a big reaction. A lot of people read it. I think the editor emailed me yesterday to say that there had been over 1.5 million views at this point, and that was like a lot for a personal essay, I think, on that website anyway. A lot of emails from people of colour, queer people of colour, just saying, I think, that they felt seen for the first time and that they felt this kind of specific experience that they've been having their whole lives Maybe they'd never realised that it had been upsetting them in the way that it has. And to see it written down and, like, made tangible was really helpful. A lot of white women emailed me to thank me for it too, which was fine. I got I got one really great one from a white woman, actually, that was just, like, really short. And she was like, I was so mad at you when I was reading it, which is... I heard a lot about that, about how mad white women were reading it, which she said... I was so angry because I was like, how dare this person judge me on the colour of my skin? And then she said, and then I finished reading it and I realised that I've never had to worry about that in my life. (laughs) And I appreciated that. I appreciated, like, being taken along her thought process there. I think white women are really struggling to own the fact that they have power and privilege, right, and that they can hurt the people around them and oppress the people around them. And it's really simple in that way, you know? And, like, white women are, like, not the only people who are in that situation where they're, like, a very oppressed group of people who can also oppress others. In the same way that, like, me as a brown person, you know, I'm not black, and therefore I have this privilege. I have the privilege of being light-skinned. I have the privilege of being, like, racially ambiguous. And if I'm not careful, I can use those privileges to oppress people around me and to, like, oppress black people and to oppress dark-skinned people. And that is uncomfortable. But I think it's it's a discomfort that a lot of white people and a lot of white women, which is what I was writing about, are really unwilling to own and step into. When I read this, it was like a eureka moment for me because, again, I had the feeling, but no one had ever articulated it. And I guess there is a fear of saying white women, of calling anyone out, because there is fear in general of generalizing. I I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did you have that fear Mm -hmm. when you were writing the Mm -hmm. essay? And then how did you overcome it? I think that's a really important question because I definitely had that fear. (laughs) There are definitely white women who aren't like this, right? That's not the point. You know, the point is that all white people are white. Of course, you could randomly select one black person and one white person and have that black person have a lot more privilege. But that white person is still white, like, in any scenario. And so it's become this, like, you know, difficult, frightening, taboo thing to point that out. 
And it just shouldn't be. You know, that is white supremacy working on us. So I think if we need to generalize and if we need to say, yes, every single one of you does have this potential and does have this privilege and kind of refuse to to be more nuanced because it's not being heard, then I think that's okay. And that's where I'm at anyway. I don't know what the answer is, but that's kind of where I'm at right now. I'm like, yes, yes, I will talk about all white people in that way. I love it. In the essay, you say, you know, you're reading this and you're probably thinking this is not you, but it is. Mm -hmm. Do you think that people still learn when they have an angry reaction? I don't know. And to be honest, for my own well-being, I don't really care. My work has to stop somewhere. And such a huge amount of work goes into like crafting something like this to, to reflecting to the degree that I've had to, you know, to like really think through these experiences and link them to mental health, which is really important to me. Maybe someone's going to have an angry reaction, but it's going to borrow somewhere in their subconscious. And then as more and more is written about this, which I think is happening now, you know, maybe at some point they will feel comfortable saying, yes, I'm a white person. Yes, I have white privilege. And yes, that's something that I need to be responsible for. You were writing more for people of color to understand that this is a factor in their life and this is why they might have felt a certain way, stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, no, thank you for saying that. I think that's what I mean when I'm like, I just, I'd, you know, <laughs> that's up to, like, my goal was definitely to write to people of color and to write to black people and, yeah, in the way that it did, I think just validate an experience that we're all having in the individual ways that we're having them and to be like, we can we can tell these stories and it is important and it's not frivolous. I read your <laughs> article and then I had this experience and I was thinking about it this way. I was going out at the gym the other day and this woman was coming in. She motioned for me to get the door because I was standing aside and I didn't see that she had stuff in her arms and stuff like that. And so I pushed the door open and held it for her. And as she was going through, she said, yeah, you push the door. That's how it works like kind of really snidely. And I usually never, ever say anything in situations like that, mostly because I have the fear impulse. But Mm -hmm. I said something in that moment. I said, and it it was pretty tame. I said, (laughs) wow, that was really not nice. (laughs) <laughs> and and good for you yeah but she turned around and I was scared it's like what's gonna uh, happen now you know yeah I, I guess I came away she didn't apologize by the way but I came away mm. wondering did I escalate that situation because I was taught with by my parents to like always mm-hmm. put your head down it's safer to keep going mm-hmm. so am I escalating the situation by standing up for myself and is that a good thing totally That's the thing, I think, and that's why one of the moments in the essay that was really important to me was like that moment right after I say something, because we don't, we don't live free enough to just be throwing things like that out there or like challenging people or standing up for ourselves, which is what that was, without then having like a huge amount of really difficult emotions like to deal with afterwards, like, you know, like remorse, like fear, like self-doubt you know like you doubted yourself immediately and I think that's what I'm talking about right that like you can be successful adult like doing your thing doing amazing things whatever we're all trying our best but then in moments like that we will like automatically doubt ourselves you know Um, and feel guilty and all of these things are linked and and that was how I felt in the playground when I was a kid you know like this is this must be my fault somehow or what did I do and that's that feeling of guilt 
I think manifests for people in different ways, but it's it's huge. Like people live with that guilt their whole lives and it's heavy. You know, it's heavy. It's physically and mentally heavy. You experienced it as a kid, but you didn't exactly know what it was. And it kind of made you scared and panicky, kind of shaped your mm-hmm. psyche that way. Have I got that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the essay, when I talk about being like a young child in the playground and teaching one of my white friends how to count in Urdu, mm-hmm. um, and she must have gone home and like showed her mom and like her mom really wasn't into it. And I just, I do remember, I don't have that many childhood memories either, but I remember like very acutely, like being in the playground and realizing that something was wrong the next day, you know, and realizing that she was not talking to me or like he was trying to avoid me. And then it becoming clear when the teacher, like this white teacher that we both had took me aside and was like, you know, I think you need to stay away from Becky. I got a lot of emails from people saying like, that just describes my childhood and I never felt like it was important enough to talk about. But these experiences really hurt and they really do affect our sense of self. And I do remember so clearly in that moment feeling really confused about like who I was almost, you know, because I was like, wow, I just thought I was sharing something and having fun, but it turns out I was hurting someone because I, I was told I was bullying her, you know, and... And you're a kid and you believe that. You believe that perception and interpretation of yourself may be over your own, what you know about yourself to be true. And that's one of like hundreds of moments that I've had like that in my life. And of course it gets you. And I think what I often say to people regarding situations like that is there's no wrong way to react, you know? Because I feel like if we say something, we're going to beat ourselves up and ultimately our head is going to say, why did you why did you shout at that innocent white woman, you know? Or, like, that poor woman, like, I don't my head always goes there, you know? And, like, I told that woman to relax, you know? and and The woman with the yoga mat. Yeah, and felt good about that. And that was, like, a real moment for me because, yeah, prior to that, it always would have been, you know, don't be a monster, (laughs) like, leave her alone. Or she meant well, which is what I think white people love to say, you know? They meant well. Do you think that that's a pattern? Do you, like, are we living in a moment where more people are standing up for themselves? I'd like to think so. We have to, you know, because we are living in a very polarized and violent moment. And I don't think that polarity is, like, always bad. I think it's incredible that there are so many spaces emerging for people of color to be alone together and queer people of color. I think that's another thing that white people have a hard time understanding sometimes, you know, is, like, that that's not racist and that that's really important for our healing and and it's a joyful space to be in. So I don't think segregation is always a bad thing and it's becoming much more of an imperative that we learn to defend ourselves physically, certainly, but mentally too. And I think that's why I'm so interested in microaggressions and I'm so interested in this like soft delivery of racism that so often comes from white women the first step, I think, to defending ourselves from it and changing that reality for ourselves is is being empowered to recognize that it's happening. Okay. Thanks a lot, Aisha. I really appreciate That's it. That's okay. All right, thanks. Her BuzzFeed commentary changed Aisha Mirza's life. She's had people come to her with book offers and other opportunities. But she says she doesn't really want to talk about race anymore. 
Let me know what you think by tweeting or messaging me on Facebook. I'm Rupa Shanoi, and this has been an Otherhood Short. <laughs>